Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. It started here in California with San Francisco and the Bay Area ordering people to shelter in place. And as the coronavirus spreads, state after state has ordered non-essential businesses to close and people to stay at home. New York's governor calls it putting the state on pause. Indiana's says he's asking Hoosiers to hunker down. As of March 25th, more than 100 million Americans were ordered to stay at home. Today, we're looking at people in the most extreme form of isolation— quarantine, and whether the current recommendation of 14 days is enough to stop the virus from spreading. Alexandra Trinkoff lives on Long Island in New York, and for her, alarms went off a month ago, long before America's cities started going into lockdown. So my son is a junior at Amherst College, and he was spending a semester abroad in a a program in Rome. Her son's name is Zach. And he was having a great time in Italy, but all around him, the country was in crisis. Every shop and business in this country shut down, including... And each day, the news was getting worse. So essentially, it was a kind of perfect storm that wasn't taken... By the end of the first week of March... We really wanted him to come home at that point. And he he wasn't sure, because his program kept saying, it's fine, we're going to keep the program open. But we knew it wasn't. So finally, we... But all agreed that he would be on the plane on on Sunday, March 9th, I think it was. And as relieved as Alexandra was that Zach would soon be home, she wondered, could he have the virus? Could he be bringing it back with him? Her husband's a doctor and she works in healthcare too. So at a time when most Americans were mostly going about their lives as usual, she made an extreme decision and broke the news to her son just as he came off the plane. So when I met him, I had to tell him <laughs> that he had to go into quarantine. Did you hug him when when he f- first came off? Because I imagine, like, when my kids go away and I haven't seen them for a bit, the first thing we do is we hug. No, we did not. Um, the first, I had a mask on and, and gloves. And the first thing I did was hand him a mask and gloves. And we did not hug. We kind of smiled. And it was hard not to give him a hug. So after the drive home from the airport... Zach moved into the basement, which his mom had set up as his quarantine space. I tried to envision a 20 year, what would a 20-year-old college kid who just got pulled out of his dream place want. So I cleaned the basement and I filled up, you know, the refrigerator with cold cuts and hot sauce and bread and Pop-Tarts and double stuffed Oreos. So uh, is, is he still in the basement right now? He is, actually. <laughs> can can you uh, get him to join us? Um, sure. Hold on. Okay. So he's going to be logging in from the basement because he just can't be in the same room as Alexandra. Hold on. I have to yell. Oh, I guess I could text. Zach, are you there? Um, yeah, I'm here. Hey, man. How are you? I'm okay. So uh, you leave Italy, take a long flight home. You get off the plane. What was your first reaction when your mom said you're going to be in quarantine when you get to the house so uh i get off the plane and i see my mom waiting for me in a mask and gloves and at first i thought it was kind of funny like because i wasn't i had no symptoms so i was like i was a bit confused and so 
Alexandra, the original plan was for Zach to stay isolated for 14 days and things would go back to normal. But then what happened to you? (laughs) So um, after we set Zach up in the basement, I got a call that I had been exposed to someone who uh, turned out to be COVID positive. And I sat pretty closely to the person in the meeting and that I was being put on quarantine. (laughs) Wow. Where, Where are you quarantining yourself at? I'm quarantining myself in the main part of the house where I have been. So the other thing about my quarantine is I had been walking around with my 17-year-old and my husband for three days already, having been exposed. So we just decided that the three of us would quarantine in the upstairs and Zach would stay downstairs. So how are you both feeling? Do you have any symptoms? Has anything popped up in the house? (laughs) No, thank uh, gosh. <laughs> I've I've been uh yeah, I've been measuring my temperature every single day. I've been here and it's hovered below ninety eight the whole time. Yeah, and me too. I've been checking my fever and I have none, so I'm really grateful. You, you didn't have to do any of this though, right? I mean this is something that you all decided to do for yourselves. Well, I, I mean, I had to because mm-hmm. I, I was required to by um, my work. But yeah, no, no one required Zach to self-isolate. <laughs> we just felt like it was a really good idea and that we could be good global citizens and not spread anything that we might have to our neighbors and friends. Yeah. Um, and so how are you guys filling up your time? What are you doing? I'm boring. I, I'm literally working from seven in the morning until... 10 o'clock at night. Zach, what about you? Yeah. Interestingly enough, I still have my classes from the school in Italy. It's a little bit hard to focus on Italian class when you're not in Italy anymore, but it's a lot of watching Netflix, like doing push-ups. Not too bad. After being in Italy and seeing how serious it is, I'm curious what you would say to, you know, a lot of young people your age feel like they're invincible and they're not going to get it and they're going to be fine. Um, What would you say to them? Yeah, no, I definitely agree that some young people aren't taking it serious enough. Like I've seen social media people on spring break in like Florida. And while it may not threaten young people as much, young people are can still spread it and make it the situation even worse. Zach, as as a father to a 20-year-old, I will tell you that uh, the best lesson you can learn from this is always listen to your mom. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) That was Alexandra Trinkoff and her son, Zach. They're quarantining for 14 days, which is pretty much the only number you hear about when it comes to how long you should isolate yourself. But new research suggests... 14 days for people who may have come in contact with the coronavirus is not long enough to slow the pandemic. Reveal Science reporter Elizabeth Shogren looked into that. The recommendation for 14-day quarantines comes from two pretty reliable sources, the World Health Organization and the CDC. Policymakers all around the world are making decisions based on it. We're literally banning international travel and restricting people's movements based on this 14-day number. So it is actually one of the most impactful numbers. Eric Feigelding is an epidemiologist. He works for Harvard University and the Federation of American Scientists. He says getting the length of the quarantine right is crucial to slow down this runaway epidemic. The 14 days is based on scientists' early estimates of how long it takes for people to get sick after being exposed to the coronavirus. That's called an incubation period. But the problem with that is that some people actually have a longer incubation time than what the quarantine 14-day limit is. And if those people leave quarantine after just 14 days, that could spread the disease to more of us. The World Health Organization and the CDC didn't have much to go on when they set the 14-day quarantine. COVID-19 was new. There were hardly any studies of patients who got it. But on March 15th, Chinese and Canadian scientists released a study of more than 2,000 people who got the virus in China. It found that more than 10% of them didn't get symptoms until after 14 days. 
Let's say all those people had been in a two-week quarantine. You'd have more than 200 people released to the streets, potentially infecting others. In those cases, the quarantine hasn't done its job. Eric says having a quarantine that's too short is especially risky in countries like ours, where there's very little testing. Because a quarantine is like a cordon, it's like a perimeter around uh, someone who you suspect may or may not have this virus. But if you don't have a good testing system around it, it for someone that escapes this uh, quarantine detection, then you better have a really comprehensive, longer quarantine. So according to this new research, a 14-day quarantine is not long enough for people who may have come into contact with the coronavirus. They could potentially infect others after their quarantines are up. But what are we doing when it comes to isolating people who actually get sick and come down with COVID-19? How long are they being told to quarantine? My name's Katherine Pyle, and I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm 74 years old, and I'm a filmmaker. A couple weeks ago, Katherine was feeling really lousy. I just crashed with real severe fatigue, a, a killer headache, but I also had a dry cough, kind of mild chills. After a few days of this, she went to the ER. Doctors told her they could not test her because they were only testing people who'd traveled to countries with known outbreaks or been in close contact with COVID-19 patients. Still, they couldn't rule out COVID-19. They told her to go home and quarantine herself. So I've been self-quarantined since then, really uh, confined to my house. Um, And a couple of friends have done grocery shopping for me, which has been great. I've just been careful not to interact with them. Catherine pulled out her turquoise appointment book and started calling people. She tracked down friends and colleagues she'd seen recently to warn them she might have COVID-19. The uncertainty has really been the most difficult part emotionally, for sure, uh, because I didn't want to alarm people that I had been with, but I also felt responsible that I should tell them that there was this possibility so that they could be alert for symptoms. As for how long Catherine should remain isolated, there isn't clear guidance on that either. Based on her doctor's recommendation, she decided to stay quarantined for 14 days from the initial symptoms. The World Health Organization has much stricter guidelines. They say someone with COVID-19 should stay isolated for 14 days after their symptoms go away. The CDC, on the other hand, says after your fever breaks, three days of isolation is enough. Eric, the epidemiologist, says even if you feel fine, coming out of isolation too soon is potentially dangerous because early research shows people still have the coronavirus in their bodies for days or weeks after their symptoms disappear. Even after you're recovered, you could still have virus shedding from your body. Shedding, meaning you could be infecting other people. That's something that worried Texas Governor Greg Abbott after the CDC prematurely released a woman from quarantine. What the CDC did is completely unacceptable. Uh, I think they understand the magnitude of the error they made. The woman had visited Wuhan, China, and tested positive for COVID-19. She was put in quarantine in San Antonio. Weeks later, she was tested again, After two negative tests, the CDC released her. She went shopping and ate in a food court. But then results came back from a third test. It was positive. Potentially, did we endanger the people of San Antonio because we did not quarantine uh, someone long enough? Eric says, until we know a lot more about the coronavirus, we need to play it safe and go with the WHO's recommendation for a longer isolation. 14 days after symptoms disappear. Back in Philadelphia, Catherine's quarantine is about to end, but she plans to keep to herself. I probably am not going to feel comfortable having transactions with people, you know, buying things in a store for probably another five days, just, just to be cautious. And being in quarantine has given Catherine a lot of time for reflection. 
the title of a book that I'd read a long time ago kind of drifted into my mind, Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I started thinking about love in the time of corona and started collecting these um, just kind of random reports that friends would send me about what was happening in their lives that were just really helpful things or fun things or beautiful things. I mean, we don't have Italians singing out of their balconies because that's not really how our cities are set up. Um, but there's a lot of other things going on that, that are just, you know, really worth focusing on. That story was from Reveal's Elizabeth Shogren. Experts fear we could be on the verge of an explosion of COVID-19, with millions of Americans getting sick. Our only hope of slowing it down may be to follow Catherine and Eric's lead and take quarantining seriously, whether we feel sick or not. Some people don't get to decide whether they're quarantined or not. When we come back, we'll hear from people inside a prison, and we follow the story of a 97-year-old woman who was put in government quarantine. I feel like the people in this entire country should know what really happens and what they can expect if a terrible emergency occurs in their home area. You're listening to Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Quarantines, social distancing, self-isolation are all ways people are trying to keep themselves and others safe. But for the roughly 2 million incarcerated people in the U.S., it's a different story. They don't have a choice about living in close quarters. And there are concerns about how quickly the virus could spread behind bars. An inmate at the Massachusetts Treatment Center in Bridgewater has tested positive for coronavirus. One inmate at Rikers Island has contracted the coronavirus, and now families are worried about the safety of their loved ones. And worries are growing about the viral outbreak spreading through jails and prisons in Illinois. So how are people who are incarcerated dealing with the coronavirus? We partnered with San Francisco public radio station KALW and their podcast, Uncuffed, to find out. The show is made by radio producers inside California prisons. We're at Solano State Prison. This is Uncuffed. And I am Brian Timms, BF Timms, along with my Uncuffed buddies. Damon Cook. Spoon Jackson, the Knight of Realness. Steve Drown. Brian Mazza. Maito Guzman. Uh... We understand that people probably want to know our perspective as prisoners of this whole coronavirus thing. I think it's more dangerous in here simply because we're in a closed environment. This is fish in a barrel. This is what's going on. So in here, we can't move around. If I'm on the streets, I can go to my house and lock myself, self-quarantine myself. I don't have to move around. But in here, I'm forced to be in there with the men. So if one infestation comes in from one source, outside source, Everyone is doomed to get it because I'm, I live in a communal environment. I live in a dorm. There's 250 men in a dorm. So if one guy gets it, everybody's going to get it because they're going to shut the door, and now I'm forced to have to breathe all the air in there. 
clearly it depends on your housing. I, I'm in a cell. I'm not in the dorm. So in that sense, I feel like on one hand I feel safer, but once it's in to the prison, you know, that, uh, what do they call it, that dormant stage, you know, I, uh, that's, that's where it's scary because you don't know at what point it comes in and at what point you touch what. It could be some of the smallest thing that you never thought nothing of, and boom, you, you find out a week later that you got that, the cooties. I get a prison some credit for having a building where they take people that are fuming with one of them uh, viruses, a quarantine, and, a quarantine building, and put them over there. So, so they do have that in general. Does that fit into how the prison is preparing for the coronavirus? No, they're not preparing. They, they don't know what to prepare. Who know what, to, what can you prepare for this thing other than washing your hands you and stuff? nothing you can do. It's going to be here. It's going to come in here. People are going to get sick, and it's, there's nothing that anybody can do anything about it. Wash their hands. If you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick, period. I was at San Quentin, and uh, Legionnaires kicked in. And when that happened, everything shut down. Entire, the entire prison shut down, including the meals. So if you want to know what fear is, is when they say there's no movement at all and then no one comes in, including the officers. And you start saying, what is this? And then they come in with hazmat suits and they come out and they bring you out of your cell 10 at a time. And it takes all day just to shower you from trucks that they drove into the prison. That's happened before? Yeah. Absolutely. It happened. I lived it. I wasn't aware of that. I lived it. My major concern being in this type of environment, I would be really concerned about people who work within the prisons, whether it's free staff, correctional officers, or otherwise, coming through and dehumanizing us. You know, that happens sometimes anyway, but that would be my only concern. That's the whole th uh, thought of being expendable. Like, we're, we're, we're easier to cut off and, and get rid of than, than the average citizen. and. In that light, uh, what was it, a year ago when the hill was on fire up here, when that fire came through, from where I'm at, outside my window, we could see that. And the first thing they went was staff. <laughs> they were suddenly gone. And you could hear people start to freak out about it. Like Then uh, uh, when the smoke started coming in and, and outside the window, you could see that thing coming down the hill. And then now you got some guy in the, in the door yelling man down for 20 minutes and he's freaking out. And there's no one to be seen. You know, that's something that at the end of the day, it's in the back of the mind. That's a good point because I remember if the, the power went out and all the air in the building was gone. And then the building started to fill up with smoke. And they left us in there locked inside that locked inside that building like that. So that's a different type of feeling than I, I can imagine if we were on the streets. Because if you know that somebody has the power to cut the power off, somebody has the power to walk out the door and lock the door behind them, that's a different feeling than you locking yourself in. And so just having that in your mind, you can't help but think, wow, we're expendable. Even though we didn't do anything to bring this virus into us, we're susceptible to a whole bunch of other things that people on the outside world aren't susceptible to. Thanks for that story from the podcast Uncuffed, made by producers incarcerated in California prisons. This conversation came from Solano State Prison. Uncuffed is supported by the California Arts Council and the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. All content is approved by a prison information officer. Special thanks to Andrew Stelzer, Eli Wertschafter, and KALW. Nine days after this story was recorded, California prison authorities announced the first cases of COVID-19. Statewide, one inmate and five correctional staff. California prisons are operating at over 130% capacity. Time seems to be moving differently in this age of the coronavirus. A day can feel like a week, a week like a month, six weeks ago feels like another lifetime. That's February 21st. The coronavirus is spreading around the globe, but officially it isn't a pandemic yet. Tens of thousands of people have tested positive. In the U.S., no one has died yet, and there are only about three dozen cases. Janice Tiller is in San Francisco, about to board the Grand Princess cruise ship for Hawaii. Thurston and I have taken several cruises, and... Uh, 
you know, we've always enjoyed them. Thirst is Janice's husband. Thirst, just like being thirsty. Janice is 97 years old. Thirst is younger. He's 82, but he's not as spry. He has had major heart attack, several back surgeries. He's diabetic. He takes four insulin shots a day. Janice and Thirst didn't know this, but the coronavirus is on board too. An invisible, deadly stowaway, mingling with the three and a half thousand passengers and crew. No one knows exactly when the virus came on board, but we do know this. A California man who got off the ship the day Janice and Thirst got on later died from COVID-19. Dozens of people who had traveled with that man were still on board when the news broke. You know, it was like, oh my God, this is the ship that my mother is on. Sharon Tiller is one of Janice's four children. She's a longtime journalist. She actually led our organization for several years, and she reported for Frontline, including on epidemics. Having reported, too, on SARS, you know, I kind of knew, you know, what the trajectory would be and also what the risks were. Janice has seen a lot in her 97 years, but nothing like this. The federal government sends all U.S. passengers into mandatory quarantine, even though it may be too late for passengers who are already infected. The response to this single outbreak reflects the government's attempt to manage the pandemic. It's a story of shortages, changing rules, broken promises, and helping hands. Reveals Emily Harris follows along at a healthy distance. The day after the man from the previous voyage died, U.S. officials order all Grand Princess passengers to quarantine in their rooms. Janice and Thirst sit in their suite, and they wait. And the captain would come on maybe three times a day, and he would apologize because these people from the government, they kept changing what they wanted to do. The Coast Guard flies out tests, and 21 people on the Grand Princess come up positive for the coronavirus. But nobody knows how many are really infected, because fewer than 50 people are tested, only if they have symptoms or were on an earlier cruise on the same ship. Vice President Mike Pence promises the testing will expand. All passengers and crew will be tested for the coronavirus. That's the promise, but here's what happens. The ship docks in Oakland, California, and passengers are sent to military bases for two weeks of quarantine. Janice and Thirst get put on a bus for Travis Air Force Base. It's only 50 miles away, but Janice says the process takes hours. We sat and we sat and we sat. And uh, we were loaded on the bus at 6 o'clock. We got to Travis Air Base at 11. By the time we were able to go to bed, it was 10 minutes of 1. Sharon only knows her mom is off the ship. There was no real information. Nobody said anything about checking their temperature or or testing, anything of that sort. They just, you know, assigned them rooms and up they went. The next morning, the sun comes out. Everything seems better. This is really a very lovely facility here. I am amazed. Janice and Thirst are in a nice third-floor room of the West Wind Inn, a hotel well-rated by Air Force Base visitors. Breakfast is served downstairs off the lobby. Janice wants coffee. I went down and I could not believe it. People were lined up back from that uh, big lobby area back to the hall, pushing and trying to cut in to try to get to coffee and food. And I so regretted that I didn't have my phone to take a picture of that total chaos. And chaos won't contain the coronavirus. So the quarantine rules get changed. They announced there would be no more food served down there due to the chaos of the morning. We would have all meals served to our rooms. Good, Janice thinks. No fighting for food with people who might have a deadly disease. But room service has problems, too. I call Janice almost every day. Oh, Emily, how are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you, Janice? Well, And she always tells me what food arrives and when. Today was one of the earliest for lunch. They came at about 2.20. Do you want to know what time they served dinner last night? What time? 8, 8.30 to 20 of 9. If Janice sounds like a gripey old lady, remember this. 
Thirst takes insulin for his diabetes four times a day with something to eat. If he doesn't take it on time, he can get really sick. Because of this irregular meal delivery, Janice starts skipping her lunch in case Thirst needs the food later. This works to a point. Not last night, but the night before, and actually it was at four o'clock in the morning, he had what we both term a diabetic downer. Thirst wakes up out of whack. And then he must have passed out, because when I woke up, he told me he had been calling me and calling me. Janice takes out her hearing aids when she goes to bed, so she hasn't heard him. She has a phone number for medical emergencies that was handed out by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. That's the agency in charge here. But nobody answers that phone. So Janice calls 911. I couldn't get him up. I can't get him up. And so he said, just try to help me slide over. And so with the help of both of us, he slid on his back. And he got onto the carpet, and then he could put his hands up on the bed. And I started to get under his arms. But see, there's no help. There was no, I didn't have any apple juice. Apple juice. That's her magic medicine for Thirst's diabetes. At home, she always has some on hand. Here in quarantine, the staff who show up after her 911 call don't have any. As far as Janice is concerned, they don't have anything. I feel like the people in this entire country should know what really happens and what they can expect if a terrible emergency occurs in their home area. Outside the base, a national emergency is unfolding. Colleges are shutting down. March Madness is canceled. People are warned to avoid large gatherings. On the base, Janice still hasn't been tested for coronavirus, and she feels that ad hoc quarantine management is making a tough situation terrible. She does find some bright spots. A CDC staff person hears about Thirst's diabetes and goes out on his own to buy them some apple juice. A British couple helps them haul their heavy suitcases upstairs. And a lieutenant colonel at the front desk digs up a shower stool. All these little things make quarantine a little better. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the kindness. You know, that's an incredible positive. But I do have to say, there's no organization. It seems to me there's nobody in charge. Other passengers quarantined at other bases are saying the same thing. By now, it's day nine of Janice's quarantine. I'm wondering if she's been tested, like Vice President Pence promised all passengers would be. Oh, here it is right here. Uh, everyone will have the opportunity to be tested, and you are not required to be tested. The results of the testing are anticipated to take several days. If the results of your tests are pending, then it is possible it may delay your departure. So when you read that, what did you think? Oh, I thought I didn't want to be tested (laughs) because I don't want to be quarantined here longer. Everyone here gets their temperature taken twice a day. They're all issued masks, which they're supposed to wear when they answer the door or go outside their rooms. Janice and Thirst don't show any symptoms of coronavirus, and they never get tested. Janice doesn't know how many people do. But one night, the British couple who helped with the luggage are out for a walk. There's only a small area because the hotel has been fenced in for quarantine. Guards are even posted outside, presumably to make sure no one sneaks out. Anyway, Sue Naki spots a man who looks kind of official. He was on the other side of the fence and we asked him various questions. He knew just how many of us were here and how many people had tested positive. And he didn't tell us not to take the test, but all his answers made us feel that he wasn't particularly recommending it. HHS officials say that more than a 1,000 passengers eventually choose to take the test. Of the 800 or so initial results, almost 13% come back positive. Janice knows nothing of this. She perks up over the next few days. Her kids are sending packages. One has Lysol and little towelettes. This morning I'm positive because I was able to clean and sanitize 
everything, even the front of the cupboard. Another is stuffed with candy that she loves. Between my gummy bears and my uh, chocolate kisses, I'm, you know, doing really great. (laughs) But when I call on day 11, something's different. Hello? Hey, Janice, it's Emily Harris. How you doing? Oh, I guess okay, Emily. I'm not too sure. Uh, Just let me sit down for a second, all right? Janice has three days to go in her 14-day quarantine. You sitting down? I'm sitting down, yes. Uh, I can't quite believe what's happened here all of a sudden, all the meals. Janice tries to stick to our usual conversation about logistics, about food, but she soon brings up what's really on her mind. It's her husband. I don't mind that he can hear this. I have noticed very definitely the mental uh, stress he's under. This morning, he just really exploded at me, he, not physically, orally. He accused me of every time he says something to me that I get angry or I jump on him or... Uh, it's very hard for me, Emily, right now. I, uh, I don't feel I deserve that. Because the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is go over, make his coffee, take it to him. Mm-hmm. When the meals come, I bring it over here to the desk and try to open up his utensils, ask what he wants to drink. I tried to explain to him that we are in this together and that, you know, we should try to really be kind to one another. And so, Emily, it's not a good day for me. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I know, but I think you want to know the truth of what's happening to people in here. I'm positive I'm not the only one who uh, is having mental, real mental stress. I mean, this is the. Uh, You know, it's not a normal situation for any of us. The next day, I asked Janice if Thirst would like to talk a little bit. Let me just turn around and ask him. Okay, thanks. Uh, Would you like to just come and talk to her for a couple of minutes? So, Emily, he is coming over. Hello, Emily. Hi, Thirst. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Good to hear. (laughs) Tell me just a little bit about about your experience, if you if you don't mind. Not much to say about it. It's kind of frustrating. You detained on the ship for four days and then coming over here for 14. You know, it works on you a little bit, but you, you try to laugh about it. The only thing you worry about is getting home and paying the bills, you know, and falling behind in the bills now. Janice and Thirst leave Travis Air Force Base 14 days after they arrived. CDC nurses take their temperatures one last time, and they get a certificate proclaiming them officially out of quarantine. Janice doesn't know this, but HHS later tells me that passengers who are still waiting for their coronavirus test results get to leave too. On the bus ride off the base, Janice sees that seats are taped off so passengers won't sit next to each other. But this couple in front of us had no masks on, no gloves. I did not take my mask or my gloves off until I was in my house here. I call Janice again after they get home. She's paying bills and trying to fill prescriptions. Hello, Emily. What's up? I have bad news to share with her. I feel actually very awkward about being the one to tell you this, but... um. Two people who were on this ship have now died of coronavirus. One was taken from the ship to the hospital, and the other was on Travis Air Force Base for a while. And I wondered if you'd heard that and No, absolutely not. And I'm really happy that you're telling me. I do. It turns out Janice had asked a CDC staff member just before leaving the base whether anyone had been taken away with symptoms of COVID-19. They just nodded and said, yes, a few. And that was the end of the conversation. 
She thinks back on her time in quarantine and realizes there were signs that some people had been getting sick. Now she wonders how safe she is in this changed world. We say goodbye. It's been such a pleasure just talking to you. You're allowing me to sort of vent. (laughs) It's been a real pleasure talking to you, too. Bye. Bye, Janice. That story from Reveal's Emily Harris. Across the country, hospitals are scrambling for medical supplies. Up next, we look at what happened in California where the state once had a huge stockpile to deal with a health crisis. This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we've been talking about how the country is responding to the coronavirus. One thing that's a huge challenge is just having enough medical supplies on hand. As people get really sick, hospitals are seeking more ventilators to help critically ill patients breathe. In New York City, one of the hardest hit areas, the city's public hospitals are already desperate. If we don't get ventilators this week, We are going to start losing lives we could have saved. I can't be blunter than that. That's New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio speaking on CNN. I will take any help from anywhere because what's happened... The shortage of ventilators has become so dire that General Motors, Ford, and Tesla are talking about retooling their factories to start making ventilators. But we've learned about a stockpile built for exactly this kind of situation. A stockpile that made California, here where we're based, one of the most prepared states in the U.S., I want you to know that California is prepared. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking on his weekly radio address back when he was governor of California. In fact, no state is more prepared to handle this type of emergency than California. We have been preparing for a flu crisis for a very long time. And we have all the essential building blocks in place to protect the public. We are concerned, but we are also confident. But since then... California let that stockpile slip away. Dr. Howard Backer was there for all of it. I am a, an emergency physician uh, who also has a degree in public health and then uh, state government experience uh, in disaster medicine. And Dr. Backer emergency. worked for 25 years in emergency rooms before becoming a top health official overseeing disaster preparedness and planning for a pandemic. Bioterrorism fears started after 9-11. And so we began doing various kinds of disaster planning around infectious agents, first smallpox and then anthrax and then pandemic influenza. But it was in 2006 that California got really serious about disaster planning. The main pandemic threat at that time was H5N1. Better known as the bird flu. California decided to invest in stockpiling medical supplies. It was a pretty big investment. If I remember, it was close to $180 million at the time. It was ultimately more than $200 million. What the state got for that money were exactly the kind of supplies that hospitals across the country are scrambling for now because of coronavirus. We invested in N95 respirators, which I think everyone knows what those are uh, now. Those are the masks that are now in such short supply that some hospitals are rationing or reusing them. The state bought more than 50 million N95s. And then there were these hospitals in a box that came with all the equipment. There were three of them with 200 beds each, and they could be set up in just 72 hours. They're called mobile field hospitals. These were complex enough that they would have an operating room an intensive care unit, an emergency department, and wards. The state also amassed enough supplies to set up 21,000 beds for patients in places like gymnasiums or community centers. And then there were the ventilators. We had 2,400 ventilators. COVID-19 attacks the respiratory system. For the worst cases, ventilators can be life-saving. But when supplies run out, doctors can be forced into making life-and-death decisions by deciding which patients get one and which patients don't. That's already happening in Italy. All the supplies California had gathered would be clutch right now. They're exactly what 
you see needed right now for COVID-19, you know, N95 respirators, ventilators. So California built up a big stockpile to prepare for a crisis like coronavirus. But then the state ran headlong into another crisis, the 2008 recession. The housing bus crashed the state's economy and put California billions of dollars in the red. Hi, I'm Governor Jerry Brown. When I took office last year, California faced a staggering deficit of over $26 billion, and red ink as far as the eye could see. In keeping up these emergency supplies, it wasn't a priority. These were large amounts of equipment and required temperature-controlled, you know, thousands of feet of warehouse space. The state had invested $214 million for the supplies. But to store and maintain that stockpile, there were annual costs that were comparatively pretty small. A total of about $6 million per year. Dr. Backer fought to keep the stockpile going. With pandemics, we know they come around, but we can't predict exactly uh, when. And so we knew it was just a matter of time, but we couldn't give anyone reassurances that, oh, this is going to happen in the next four years. Um, you know, it could have been another 20 years. Times were so tough that California was cutting deep, slashing things that people were using right then, from state parks to healthcare. Responding to some future pandemic didn't make the cut. Dr. Backer went outside the government, hoping to find a partner to keep the stockpile afloat. We went to large corporations. We went to, you know, healthcare systems. We went to foundations and we went to nonprofits to see if they would want to partner with us. But he didn't find many takers. Companies said, why should we pay for this? It's the state's responsibility. Well, there wasn't much we could say since we represented the state. <laughs> um, all we could say was, well, the state has, uh, you know, is in very difficult budgetary situation right now. And in the end, the whole stockpile concept just fell apart. California doled out ventilators to hospitals throughout the state, hoping they'd pay for the upkeep so the ventilators would be ready in a crisis. I have no idea how many of those are are viable at this time or even if the hospitals know where they were stored. The California Department of Public Health told us it still has 900 ventilators on hand. But when we asked whether they were in working order, they didn't respond. They also refused our interview requests. As for the rest of the stockpile, like masks, some were used during emergencies, like California's wildfires, and they weren't replaced. The state is now distributing 21 million masks. But there's a catch. They're expired. The state warns against using those with COVID-19 patients. And those 21,000 beds that were going to be set up in community centers and gyms, the state gave some of them away and even looked into trashing them. But those fancy mobile field hospitals didn't go without a fight. I appreciate the fact that we're here today to talk about an issue that if, God forbid, but if and when it does happen, the public is going to expect and demand that we are uh, as ready as is humanly possible. That's State Senator Hannabeth Jackson speaking at a 2015 hearing on emergency management. By this time, the state budget was healthier, nearly balanced. But the state had already given up on keeping two of the mobile hospitals at the ready, and they were about to defund a third. Frankly, it seems to me like an incredible waste of resources uh, to have these things uh, sitting inactive and unusable. I mean, this is, uh, I won't say ludicrous, but... It's kind of bordering on what in the heck are we doing? So could you tell us what efforts are being made to try to uh, reinstate these uh, facilities? Uh, you know, we never know when that next disaster is going to occur, but if these things have been mothballed, there are going to be a lot of questions asked. Certainly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you very much for your question, Senator Jackson. Uh, we have never stopped pursuing uh, all avenues to maintain the hospital program. By 2016, the state revamped the mobile field hospitals, opening them up to be used more often, but without the sophisticated medical equipment. So today, those hospitals in a box are now more like tents. What we had to do was 
downgrade them from acute care level to more of a shelter, low acuity level. Now, California is one of the U.S. hotspots for coronavirus and desperate for medical supplies like masks. So much so that the union, National Nurses United, is publishing video testimonials from California nurses. Um, We're running low on gowns. We're running low on masks. We need the face shields. It's causing a lot of anxiety. We have a very limited supply of regular surgical masks, so limited that they are being hidden or locked up by management. And it is scary being a nurse right now. As for Dr. Backer, he retired last year. And it's hard for him to sit on the sidelines watching how the crisis he planned for is unfolding in his state. He says he feels... Uh, pretty impotent, but <laughs> uh, it's, it's, um, it's disappointing and frustrating. And, uh, you know, you look back and you say, okay, how, how, how could this have happened that we had these resources and, and let them go? Squandering an advantage that could be helping us fight the coronavirus right now. Our story was reported by Reveals Will Evans, Will Carlos, and Lance Williams. It was produced by Catherine Miskowski. This week's show was a huge group effort, with reporting and producing from Elizabeth Shogren, Jennifer Gollin, Emily Harris, Will Evans, Will Carlos, Lance Williams, Catherine Miskowski, and Najee Bamini. The show was edited by Taki Telenidis, Brett Myers, and Jen Sheehan. We had additional editorial support from Esther Kaplan. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Score and sound design by the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Amy Mustafa. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reeve and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, the only way we get through this is together.